This is Visions Under Construction. A chance for our guests to share their visions and tell us what they're working on. For their continued support, we would like to thank Simwood, straight-talking, forward-thinking telecoms. Simwood.com. Why not make Cloudonics your communication partner? Go to cloudonics.io. You can find everything about the VUC at VUC.me. Thanks to Bluehost. And thanks also to ZipDX.com, the conference bridge, and to Voxbone.com for local rate dial-ins. Our guest today, this is super because somebody I just met, but who's known me for uh, 45 years, I think. Eric, Eric Mattis. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Randy. It's really a pleasure to meet you face to face. It's fantastic, Eric. And uh, there's a whole bunch of funny uh coincidences or non-coincidences that we're going to talk about. But before we do, you are, like me, a musician, you're a guitarist, uh, composer, singer, and I, you probably play lots of other instruments. Let's start the way back where you were born and a brief summary of up until you actually had your first musical awakening, because then we want to hear about that. Where do you sure. come from? Well, I was born in Connecticut in uh, 1953. And uh, Derby, Connecticut, which is an, an area of western Connecticut that they call the Naugatuck Valley. They just call it the valley there in Connecticut. And it's a very industrial area. Uh, highly, uh, it's, it's very ethnic, uh, very ethnic type of uh, makeup and uh, very industrial, as I said. And uh, both of my parents uh, wanted to leave there uh, shortly after they started having kids. And my dad had always uh, dreamed about living in the West. So uh, we, uh, my dad and my mother, uh, without any job promises or anything, packed the whole family up, the three kids, uh, including myself, and moved from Connecticut to Colorado uh, in 1959. And uh, we lived in Denver for about a year. And my dad was uh, busy all the time helping to build a, a place out in Parker, which was out in the middle of nowhere at the time. There were, it was outside of a town of less than 200 people in, in central Colorado. Um, and uh, we, we moved there in, in uh, either the end of 59 or the beginning of 60, lived there for six years. And then um, my parents uh, divorced, uh, oh, probably six, seven years later. I lived in Denver for several years. And then when my mom remarried, uh, we moved to Chicago in 1969. So I was in the Chicago area uh, and uh, and central Illinois, where I went to school and things like that, till 78. I lived in Dallas, Texas from 78 to 81 and uh, moved back to Denver in 81 uh, till 84. And uh, music led me out here to uh, uh, Seattle, Washington in 84. And I've been here ever since. I never thought I'd be in any place this long. I want to ask you something about, before we even get to the musical, I want to hear about how you got into music and the first experience. But before we do, I'm curious because um, my family took up roots and or left um, in the middle of my, I think I was between sixth and seventh grade. We moved to, wait for it, Seattle, but um, for a year and a half. So I was in junior high school, seventh and seventh and, and, and eighth grade. Then we moved back. So I was jerked out of junior high school where you, one word for it, puberty, 
Yeah. So, you know, there's a whole thing happening there. I just want to ask you, because I experienced this and it had a very profound effect on my whole life. Um, were you, when you moved, were, was that critical times? Do you feel that you had a social, there was a social impact to that? Did you have trouble after that, uh, fitting in or anything like that? And is that why you're a geeky musician now, <laughs> like me? Uh, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty astute. Uh, I, I, you, you're absolutely right. I never really gave it too much thought in that matter, but uh, I, you're absolutely probably correct on in terms of the fact that I learned to be more self-reliant and uh, kind of stuck to myself more. And um, um, having grown up in a family that uh, had been, uh, you know, we had separation and things like that, and there were other issues involved, um, I started working at a really early age, uh, getting jobs at a really early age. Uh, so I was always busy either working or playing music. And uh, that's what I was. And the majority of my real friendships were in music. I wasn't really an athlete. You know, the only interests I had outside of music were model rocketry because I used to design and make my own model rockets, you know, another geeky thing. And then uh, and martial arts, which, um, you know, was also kind of a geeky thing, you know, but uh, those are those were my three main interests. And by far, the, the biggest one was music. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, you're maybe not quite old enough to know this, but every closet had an accordion in the 50s. And um, I may have even coined this phrase, but, you know, the guitar, the electric guitar is the accordion of the 60s. Oh, yeah. I'm curious if, if was guitar your first instrument? And by the way, electric or, or uh, acoustic? Well, um, my mother was an opera singer. And she was a trained opera singer. And uh, she looked at the guitar as sort of an illegitimate kind of instrument, kind of like a harmonica. And uh, she thought that, you know, just cowboys played it and stuff like that. And uh, she didn't have the greatest respect for some of those musicians. And um, so uh, it wasn't something I was really encouraged to take up. And she got me started when I was nine years old. She sent me for piano lessons. And uh I did piano lessons for a little less than a year, and in less than a year, I had already surpassed my sister. It had piano lessons for three years. Um, I, I had, I had a, a love for music, and of course, piano was great. I loved piano, but my mother told me at the time, um, "Look, if you're going to take guitar lessons, you got to stop piano lessons because I can't afford both." And so uh, I quit my piano lessons. And just then my mom got a divorce from my dad. So I never did end up getting those guitar lessons, you know. Instead, I studied out of books, you know. And there was no YouTube in those days. So, wow, you know. Yeah. yeah. But my sister was really, uh, I had grown up listening to, uh, my dad really liked cowboy songs. You know, he really liked uh, Sons of the Pioneers and, uh, you know, Gene Autry. And uh, he liked... Uh, Frankie Lane and Marty Robbins and all those kinds of guys sung like Western songs, you know. And uh, so I grew up around that. So I heard a lot of kind of like Western swing guitars. In fact, the first guy who inspired me to play guitar that really moved me, that physical thing, uh, that that thing that just makes you want to, you really want to play guitar was uh, a Grady Martin, great guitar player, Grady Martin, who was a Nashville studio guitarist. And he wasn't even credited on the, the album that I was listening to that, you know, motivated me um but um so my my dad caught me strumming on a broom one time 
uh, nobody, I didn't think anybody was watching and I was, you know, a kid and he said, well, we got to get you a guitar. So he went to Denver, into Denver and uh, bought me a cheap Stella, uh, one of those three quarter size uh, guitars for like 12 or $14 or something like that. And that's what I played for the first four years of my guitar playing. Let's and let's make sure that the people who were not born decades ago realize that there is absolutely n oh we have a little message from Andy so I don't know what's happening Andy should be should be okay um, there was as I said no YouTube but there was also what you did is if you wanted to slow a record down you had to buy the forty five and put it on thirty three I don't know if you did you well let's get to that you're the guest you tell us how did you learn. When you want to cop a lick off of a record, for example, so you could listen to the record a hundred times or cassette tape, but there wasn't the ease of slowing it down that we have today, let alone the printed materials on the internet free mostly or uh, YouTube. So what were your, what was your method since you didn't take lessons? What was your method for learn from, for learning the guitar? Um, yeah, that's um, the the learning off of uh, the slowing down the records and things came a little bit later for me when I started to copy guitar solos and things like that. Uh, at first, my main interest was guitar as a rhythm instrument and, uh, you know, uh, as an accordal accompaniment. And uh, so uh, when I first started, uh, the first thing my dad said to me is, well, you need to buy a Mel Bay guitar uh, chord book, you know. So I did, you know, and the first thing I did was I I um, I started playing. Well, the first thing I ever learned on guitar was taps, which you can do almost entirely with open strings, you know, <laughs> on the guitar, with the exception to one fretted note, you know. And I was so proud of it, and my family's like, well, you know, uh, but uh, but you know, everything at that age, you know, at, at the age of ten years old. Anything makes you happy. Every anything you do on that instrument makes you happy. So you're, regardless of what any what anybody else might think of it at the time, you're just thrilled with anything you could produce, right? So, so that's how it was with me. And uh, my sister was into um, folk music. She was really into Peter Paul and Mary and Joan Baez and stuff. And she's three years older than me. So. Um, I grew up around that and it was very easy for me to learn those tunes. I just learned them by ear. Now I bought a Mel Bay chord book and the minute I built some of those chords that I saw in the diagrams, as soon as I heard the chord, I immediately started hearing melodies and things that I had heard in familiar songs. So automatically it was, it was, I was able to put the harmonies together uh, to, to build things. And I, I do have a mathematical mind. It was something that was always good for me in that sense. So it was easy for me to transpose and to figure things out. Arithmetically, I somehow figured it out on the guitar. Uh, that was the beginning. And it was, yeah, it was much later, years later, when I started really getting into playing solos and things there, I would like go back over a record, like you say, you know, I would just play a record. A lot of the records I was listening to at that point then, at the point I was learning solos were on 33, you know, they were, uh, so I would go back and I would, you know, I'd play the record again and again. I'd, I'd pick those spots up again and again and again and again and again. But I think I also had a good ear for picking out, for being able to find things on the guitar. And um, it, it auto, I automatically found the, the voicing spot on the guitar. In other words, the spot in the fretboard where I thought it was physically capable of actually 
pulling off a lick, you know. Right. You know, well, there's, you know, on the guitar, of course, you know that there's like, you know, you there are a lot of different spots in the guitar where you get the exact same note. So, um, so because of that, you kind of have to have a sense of where is this being played, right? And uh, right, totally. A um, couple of differences, uh, of course. If we zoom forward to today, there are free tools like, well, in the interim, maybe. 20 years ago, before the internet, there were devices that you could buy that would slow down or change yeah. without changing the pitch, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe they did. Sure, they have that slow down, that fabulous slow down or something like uh, that doesn't change the pitch. It was available for uh, Macintosh. Uh, my son, my son had that, you know. Well, and, well, there's a actually Audacity will do that in high quality um, oh. for and it's free. So that's a free program that's that's available on all platforms. Uh, that's good there's just fantastic learning tools today oh yeah uh, but uh, back in the day there was not and i wanted to mention a couple comments on um, the suggestion to get the mel bay book well mel bay and other guitar chord books presumably people who listen to this a lot of them will be interested in the topic of guitar so we're getting a little deep dive into that one of the problems with those chord books is that they you know, like if you buy an, the encyclopedia of 10,000 chords, it has, you know, it has 10,000 chords, but it's got like 1,000 uh, of the same chord moved up 12 frets. Yeah. So, you know, it's not really, it's kind of a lie. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, what the, the, the book that I would recommend to people would be Ted Green's Chord Chemistry, which, is oh, in out of, which has been in and out of print, but I'm pretty sure you can get it. In fact, I think I have it on, um, I think I have it an electronic version on um on Amazon, on Kindle even. And that's an amazing book. We don't want to get too much into that, but I want to throw that out there. Chord Chemistry, fabulous book. Because Eric, when you were learning the uh, chords of the groups you mentioned, obviously, actually, they were, they're fairly obvious. You know, you have a, a G. Go ahead. I was just going to say Chord Chemistry is available on Amazon. It is. We should put mm -hmm. a link with our thing, but it doesn't. Our uh, partner thing has never brought in a penny because it doesn't work. It's and great. I, it's a great book, and I'll and I'll say this that anybody who was ever a student of, of Ted Green is a killer guitar player. Not, I know a bunch of them, and they're like, "Oh my God, these guys really good," you know. I actually was able to take a couple of lessons. I wouldn't call myself a student of his, but he and I uh, got along, and he uh, let me take a couple of lessons. And then I got a job, so I got screwed out of the lessons with Ted Green. Uh, Probably changed my life, but I'm not sure in which direction. Anyway, I just want to mention again about the Ted Green book. You can open it to any page and learn new chords and so on. But also there's a there's a site called tedgreen.com. And uh, his students that you mentioned, Eric, have all come back and put together different Ted Greenish versions of tunes. So you've got, there's like 50 versions of Autumn Leaves, just to name an example. Yeah. You've seen that, right? You know the site? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. But what it's I was starting to say was that when you were learning that music, you hear a G chord, there's only a certain number of ways somebody in the, that music is going to play a G chord unless they've got mm -hmm. a capo. So, yeah. you know, I, I did the same route as you. I know that, you know, you're going to, you know, hang down your head. Tom Dooley by the Smothers Brothers is going to be the G to the D, I'm guessing the key, but G, D, and those, those things are really, really easy to hear. If you were talking, uh, you know, n no greater love, the Ted Green arrangement, you're not going to be getting that. Yeah. Well, you no. might get it by ear, but it would take you four lifetimes. Anyway, yeah, Cor you know, Corrado, did, did you want to say something, Corrado? Uh, well, we, if my audio is okay, uh, we were, are talking about 
chords and and songs that you you get reminded when you hear a sequence of chords there's a very famous song from uh, i posted the the link uh for for for, for you uh that from axis awesome yeah it's that great four chord song uh if you play that with the same four chords there are probably 40 very famous songs that you can play on those chords yeah those guys did a brilliant job are you familiar with that eric the axis of awesome thing uh, I, I'm not, but but it does remind me of something that happened to me when I was a little kid. When I was when I was first learning, my mom brought a a, a magazine home. I think it was uh, I forget what it wasn't like family wasn't like it wasn't Family Circle or one of those, but it was like one of those ones from the fifties, you know, and the sixties that it was. I I forget now which one it was, but they had a little article in there. Play guitar in like you know an hour. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, I'll check this out. And uh, so everything was like little one finger chords, you know, you could like a C, C on, on, you know, on the top three strings and, and an F on the, you know, on the top three strings and stuff like that. And a G and for a little kid just starting out, that was an easy way to do it. Because for me, even building the standard folk G chord was difficult, you know, and um, uh, yeah, there's, there's. There, and like the, the the point that you brought up about about the chord book, too, is it's, you know, yeah, it's one of the things I do with my students right away is teach them how to build chords. You know, I mean, it's uh, and that's really the best way to do it. Uh, look, it's all available right here. You know, I'll, I'll show them it's all available right here. So they, they have to do they have to learn a little bit of theory. But I find that because most of my students are adults, uh, they're they're sort of up for that. You know, they're they're more patient, you know. Even better, even better. By the yeah. way, we're talking about, uh, you could learn everything possible about Eric by going to ericmattis.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-D-I-S.com. And presumably there's links to your lessons as well. And you can listen to some of Eric's work, uh, which is a lot of it's pretty amazing. I say a lot of it only because I haven't listened to it all. <laughs> oh, thank you. Very cool. Eric, do you play other stringed instruments? So you, do you haven't kept up the piano, presumably? Or you know enough to do a few things to compose? Or where's your piano at, first of all? Yeah, I don't even have a piano. Uh, my son's got a keyboard in the other room and, uh, you know, occasionally I'll go in and play that. But, uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, for me, the piano, because I mean, once you develop a knowledge of theory and things, it's so easy to to build things on the keyboard. Um, on the other hand, it's not the same as developing the physical, uh, you know, uh, the uh, f physical ability on the instrument and, you know, being able to, to develop a uh, uh, skill on the instrument. So, uh, so anything I do would be, you know, rudimentary or, you know, would be basically, you know, I could build any chord I wanted to you know, identify it or build any melody, but, uh, but other than that, no. And you asked about other stringed instruments. And of course I've done studio in the studio. I've played bass. I've often played bass on some of my own instrumental compositions. If I felt that, you know, that rhythmically or they were weird enough to where I didn't want to hire somebody to, to come in and play them or something. And so I've done that. Uh, but, uh, and of course I've, 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 tried a lot of different musical instruments. I played mandolin back when I was in high school and uh, just out of uh, college for a while. And uh, because my, my grandfather's from Italy and he, and, uh, and uh, I had a couple of his old mandolins and. Uh, <laughs> Corrado, um, Corrado is from Italy. He's our, he's yeah. Scottish I, transplant from Italy. 
<laughs> Yo, nice to meet you, Corrado. Nice to meet you too. I've been living in Scotland for uh, almost a quarter of my life now. So wow, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm really adopted. Uh, I I dream in, in Scottish, so I no longer <laughs> dream in Italian. So that that's pretty. You've uh, got that uh, interesting but, accent, though. It's kind of a blend of the two. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I often get told that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a mixture yeah. of both, and it makes that so much worse to understand. It, we, we think it's his most redeeming quality, actually. So. <laughs> anyway, okay, Corrado, you do have that hum, though. I'm, I'm okay. sorry to uh, inform you, so we need to keep that down. Um, all right, Eric, so we've got you at learning the chords from all these country groups and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And then obviously we could speed forward a little bit to... Your yeah. other interests. So you got into blues and jazz, obviously, and if yeah. I don't know what else, but uh, where well, do you go from there? You know, it's it for me. Music has just been a constant evolution, you know, an evolutionary process. Uh, I started off playing the folk stuff. So my favorite band back in the '60s was the Birds. You know, we're doing like folk rock. So I I had a band back in the in the mid '60s in Denver uh, with a friend. Uh, uh, we, where we did uh, uh, the bird stuff, you know, and we did a really good job on the harmonies and all that stuff, you know, and uh, we were called the Finks of Babylon. And <laughs> remember how everybody in those days was calling everybody a Fink? Yeah. Well, this was, so this was kind of a play on that word, with, but I made it like Sphinx. It was like P-H-Y-N-X, the Sphinx of Babylon. And of course, there was no Sphinx in Babylon, you know, but uh, uh, for me, a kid at the time, it just kind of just, kind of stuck with me i said hey thinks of babylon and we all went with it you know so i played folk rock in that band and then uh, as i said to you earlier in 69 we moved from denver to chicago uh, a move i was not happy about at the time you know because um, i was leaving the few friends that i did have and the bands that i was playing with the duets i was playing with a good friend of mine and things like that but we moved to Chicago, and of course, I, I I had no way of knowing that eventually that that connection with blues and Chicago blues would end up kind of changing my life in certain ways, you know. So we moved to Chicago, and I continued to play by myself. Um, I started going out and playing the coffee houses in Chicago uh, as a solo act, um, playing on acoustic guitar and singing and doing my own original material, and then covers by contemporary. Uh, you know, singer songwriter uh, and folk artists, you know, and I started getting into blues at that time. I was always into jazz. I always loved jazz. You know, uh, my stepdad one time took us to a supper club in Denver and there was a whole bunch of different acts, at this supper club, uh, comedians and all that stuff. And my favorite act of the whole night was this piano trio, you know, jazz piano trio. I mean, they were the people I really loved. That was the music I really loved. So I've always liked jazz. And uh, so I've always had kind of an open ear. And for me, music is music. And I listen for expression in music. And I listen for subtlety. And I listen for technique. And I listen for all the different things that either move me, uh, you know, emotionally or impress me or... Uh, challenge me intellectually whatever those are the things that that draw me into music of any kind uh, regardless of style so um a friend of mine that i was doing a duet with uh, steve marshall uh, uh in you know in the chicago area when i was in school uh 
kind of got me into blues. I had listened to some blues before, but he got me into blues and I started getting into it even a whole lot more than he was even into it at the time, you know? Uh, and I, and I got into um, all the different blues artists at the time, though I was more into the Texas and West coast artists like T-Bone Walker and the Johnny Otis show and that kind of stuff uh, more than I was into Chicago blues. But then I discovered these guys like, like, uh, um, you know, uh, little Walter Jacobs and his music sounded like it came from another planet, you know, and it was right. That stuff was going right on in my own city of Chicago. And I didn't even know it, you know. So I started going down to the blues clubs in Chicago. And, uh, you know, uh, that was an experience because, you know, it was like there was this long eared hippie guy, you know, white guy down there in these clubs. And occasionally there'd be two of us in the club or something like that. But often it was just just me, you know, um, in amongst African-Americans. And uh, I would go down to these blues clubs. And, uh, you know, back in those days, it was it was a racially charged city. It was a year after 69 was a year after Martin Luther King had been assassinated. And uh, there wasn't a good relationship between, uh, you know, African-Americans and whites, especially in Chicago. Chicago is kind of a prejudiced place in some ways, or at least at the time it was. And um, so uh, but I, I found the people in those blues clubs to be actually quite accommodating and nice as a general rule. And uh, only thing you didn't want to do was drive down there. If you drove down there, you mark, your car might be up on like blocks or something when you came out of the club. So you'd take a, a cab down there and uh, you go you'd have them drop you off right in front of the place. And you'd go in there and, you know, and hang out, listen to the music and then. Uh, call call a cab before you left you know so right so chicago how long did that last well i was in the chicago area uh for uh 10 years or so i was there from 69 to 78 and uh, of course during that period of time and that's where i went to call it i went to college uh in there in illinois uh, I had to go to school in Illinois. I had the Illinois State Scholarship, and it was only for schools within Illinois. And so I ended up going to school first at Illinois Wesleyan for a year and a half, and then the University of Illinois. In fact, it was the, at the University of Illinois where I saw Pure Food and Drug Act, essentially. You know, I, I saw, you know, the uh, Sugar Canes band. I, of course, I knew about you guys. I had been listening to you and bought the records, and all my friends were saying, hey, check out this band. It's got Sugar Cane in it, Harvey Mandel, and so, you know, so, you know, we would listen to those guys, and that's, you know, where I, that's when I met Paul Lagos and Victor Conti, and, of course, you weren't there at the time. It was Coleman Head, you know. Um, yeah, that was after I quit the band. But um, just a quick note, too. You mentioned Johnny Otis and Paul, Paul yeah. and uh, Don Sugarcane both yeah. played with Johnny Otis. You knew that. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, Sugarcane was awesome with 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 Johnny Otis. And he He's also played. Most people might recognize the name because he played with Frank Zappa. Absolutely. That's where I first heard about, uh, you know, Sugarcane Harris was by that Hot Rats album. Oh, not Hot Rats, but uh, uh, Weasels Rip My Flesh. That's right. That's right. I think yeah. I thought it was he was on Hot Rats. Uh, by the way, little, another little parenthetical uh, insertion here that uh, live on stage, Don, a.k.a. Sugarcane Harris, played some really, really crazy stuff. But whenever he was recording, there was a lot of sociological and personal issues that caused him... Uh, not to play w what he could have been playing. And my opinion is that, that Don could have been a kind of a Jimi Hendrix type figure because of his extensive 
classical. He was trained as a classical violinist. Oh, I so know. He that. was absolutely an amazing, and he played with Little Richard. He played bass with Little Richard, yeah. I think, even. And he just, just, this was an an incredible character with a huge talent who just somehow got into a scene, basically a drug scene, but also just the way his life went. Uh, his talent was wasted. Unlike, say, a Steve Jobs or a uh, yeah. Elon Musk, who are people who are wacky personalities, but apparently because maybe they didn't get too much into drugs, were able to realize their genius. Uh, Sugarcane was, he had a uh, perfect pitch, by the way. And he was just an amazing, he wasn't just a good violinist. He was an amazing violinist. I don't think anyone has ever come close to him in the blues. And I mean, there are many no. great players. Yeah. But, yeah. I agree uh, completely. And there's absolutely no way he could not have had things gone differently for him that he couldn't have been as well known, if not more so than, you know, Ponty or, or any of those guys who, who, who kind of led the fusion movement, you know? Right. Right. He was, he was an amazing guy. He even had uh Coltrane's producer at one point. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, you mentioned uh, 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 little Richard. I do have a record with him playing with little Richard. And he did play bass, right? Yeah. He, but there's one tune where he plays violin. Um, oh. I have it. It's um, it's going back tomorrow is the name of the tune. It's a blues tune. I'll have to look into record, that. Like a Texas style blues. And he's on that. Uh, it's, it's actually an album that I bought years ago. Cause it was Jimi Hendrix with, uh, uh, with little Richard. And right. uh, but it ended up having sugarcane on. Hey, look at this! It's got sugarcane on it. You know, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, what brought you to Seattle? I don't well, think it was Nirvana. No, uh, no, it was. <laughs> it was um, well, you know, uh, each place I went to kind of was uh, my way of like. I I never really liked Chicago that much, even though I liked the music there and stuff. I never really liked. The, the city that much and I always wanted to get back to the west which I I had this spiritual type of uh, uh, connection with the Rocky Mountain area you know and so I uh, I ended up down in Texas for three years because I had an opportunity to play in a band down there and do studio work in Dallas and there was a lot of studios in Dallas because they did a lot of jingles and things like that and so um I, I wasn't a good reader at all, but I could arrange, you know, and I could write arrangements. You know, I could I could write like, uh, oh, like head sheet type arrangements, you know. And so um, I went down there and worked down there for three years. And I ended up uh, in a band in Denver in 81 called Ukiah that I put together and I moved up to, to there. And that band, well, without going into all the details, you know, that had a lot of the problems that any band has has you deal with especially um well you know when i was i i wasn't like hand picking it when i was there in the city i kind of put it together while i was still in dallas you know and uh, so i played in that band and on the demise of that band i played in a blues band called don't go no further i had played in blues bands back in chicago and stuff like that and played with older blues men like walter horton and Sunnyland slim and stuff when i was in chicago but uh, I ended up uh, uh, the the scene in Denver at that time in the in the mid '80s was really not very good, and especially for playing blues. And I went out as I visited Seattle. 
I, I found it to have kind of a healthy, small but healthy blue scene and nice little jazz scene too. And so I thought, well, I'm going to, I want to head out to the West Coast and play the West Coast. Uh, but I had relatives in Seattle and I thought at first, well, it might be nice to live in Portland, you know. So I moved out here. But in the mid 80s in Portland, you couldn't get a day job. Uh, nobody would hire somebody from outside of the um, the state of Oregon. They kind of it was there were jokes about it and everything, but it was hard to get just like even a day job to support yourself to get things rolling, you know, in a town. So I ended up in Seattle and um, I started playing on the 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 R&B I was in a funk band here, uh, uh, R&B funk band here when I first got to town, uh, Smokestack Lightning. And then, um, you know, after that band uh, moved on from that band, I, I started, you know, leading my own things and joining other bands, too. Uh, so I ended up here in 84. And, uh, of course, I had no way of knowing that I would end up meeting my wife. You know, I did. And. And, uh, you know, buying a, buying a home, deciding that I had, well, I worked this day job for six years. And uh, while I was teaching two courses at the University of Washington uh, Experimental College, uh, guitar classes and uh, playing, you know, gigs around town. And between all those things, my day job, my teaching, I had private students. I had those two courses and I was doing gigs. I saved up at that time uh, in the mid 80s toward the late 80s $14,000 and uh, so I put half of that money into a down payment on a home here in Seattle and half of that money into my first record Nine Shades Blue and uh, that kind of got the ball rolling with getting me recorded because I didn't know if I would ever be in a band that would ever get on a label or anything like that and at that time the whole thing with labels was disintegrating anyway how was that recorded? The the album you're talking about, what was it a studio? Was it home studio? Was it electronic? Yeah, that was all recorded in a studio. I recorded it at Ironwood Studios where I had done some studio work. Uh, with, you know, pardon me? On tape? Yeah, on 24-track analog, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I released that in 19, it was 1991 where I released it. So at that time, although it was recorded, um, you know, uh, Neum, uh, big Neum, uh, you know, console and 24 track analog, you know, several tapes of those, you know, a couple hundred dollars each for each one of those rolls of tape, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, we mixed it down to digital and that very first record was released on a cassette, actually. Uh, and I had intended to put it out on on CD later on, but cassette at the time uh, in 1991 was still a kind of a, a, a way, an affordable and uh, way that people were still commonly listening to cassettes at that point, especially in their cars and things, you know. So I put that first one out. Uh, then and so that's what I did and 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 of course like I said I, I I got married and I've been in Seattle here ever since you know yeah, we actually we kind of skipped over I was going to ask you how you got into teaching because at some point uh, either somebody offered you saw you uh, and said hey I'd like some lessons or some how, how did that happen how'd that go down yeah well you're, you're right they did do that uh, but uh, I first started teaching in 1976 when I was living in Champaign Illinois uh, I was working I was playing in a blues band down there in Champaign and uh, 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 and uh, when I was um, 
when I was play working for them, I needed a day job. And uh, this guy who ran Rosewood Guitar Shop in Champaign said, hey, you know, uh, we could use somebody to teach blues and jazz here. And I said, okay, that's good, you know. And uh, and then when I had been there for a couple of months, he said, hey, uh, Roy Davis, the main luthier here, is taking off. Uh, on the road with a band, why don't you, uh, you know, until he takes off, why don't you apprentice to him and learn how to repair instruments? And so I became a luthier and guitar repairman at that time. So between that and teaching, I was sort of able to kind of make a living uh, there in Champaign. Fortunately, I lived very, very inexpensively. And uh, so, um, that's why I got started teaching in 1976. And then later on, I would continue that. I didn't teach in Dallas, but when I moved to Denver in 1981, uh, in 1983 and 84, I started teaching a class at the uh, what they call the um, Denver Free University uh, in uh, uh, blues guitar. And I ended up with a lot of private students from that. So I began to to teach to enjoy teaching classes and also getting private students from that. That's where a lot of my private students in all the years I've been teaching, I have never had to advertise, never had to put up a sign or run an ad or anything to, for students because I teach these classes and, um, and I'm out playing. So people approach me there, like you said, you know, and also it's, it's a big area for word of mouth, obviously. And, uh, peers, share with each other, you know, Hey, I saw this guy, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, I have a friend in Santa Barbara who keeps wanting to do other stuff and keeps getting offers to teach at different places. Uh, the internet, which he doesn't do is something that you do though. Now I myself have taken, as I told you, I took some base classes with John Patitucci. This yeah. thing, I, I hate to give them publicity for reasons that uh, I had an argument with the people at artist works. I think it's called. But mm -hmm. the fact is, um, just to share the experience, John Patitucci, who is a world-class, you know, Eric, you know his name, but yeah. a lot of people don't. Uh, he's an amazing guy. He's the world-class bass player, and he plays he plays electric bass, but he also plays upper bass. He's played with a lot of famous people. And he, uh, what the way that works is that you pay a certain amount a month and you have access to his lessons. You execute the lesson in a video, you post that video to the site. It's avail It's vi visible by everybody. So it's a little kind of a funny shower room <laughs> situation <laughs> where, you know, if you're a little timid, it's not going to work well. But um, but at the same time, I mean, I, I said, hey, I'm a beginner. So here's what it is. And, and then the teacher posts videos back to you response. And they're personal. They are not to the whole, you know, oh, you guys are great. It was, you know, right individual with your name saying, pointing out all the things that he saw. I mean, these things are maybe 10 minutes long at the most, maybe more like four. But the point is that he would do that. And it just, I was so impressed with the fact that this guy, who was such a great player, uh, put his heart and soul into it because he could have been phoning it in. So the, the, the internet, for all its ills, is a pretty amazing place when these things are done right. So, Oh, yeah. Had it not been for the internet, I would have never connected with you. Randy, oh, that's true too. Yeah, but I would have never. I had no way of knowing you were in France, and and uh, you know, it's it's just you know, it's amazing the amount of information there is out there, and the ability to connect with other individuals around the world. 
And on that same uh, place that you connected, Eric, which is a, a form on my site, uh, actually I've received over the years, now, you know, not 20 a day, but occasionally people have written and said, hey, man, you know, I saw you guys with Paul Lagos. I know he just died. He died a few years ago now. but yeah. Or, you know, sharing stories. And when we, when Paul first, when Sugarcane first died, uh, we put some things up there. And when Paul died, he was very well known by, the, by drummers and people, musicians. Got to lots of interesting comments. I mean, interesting in the sense that they shared their life experience. And um, so, yes, the internet is great on that aspect. But how how did you get into teaching on the internet? Because you also teach for people, and you need to tell us the school and how to the uh, URL for that uh, school. But how did you first get into that? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I have a friend uh, named uh, Michael Hawkeye Herman. He's a uh, uh, he's a solo act, uh, acoustic blues, uh, you know, a musician, artist. And uh, he also teaches. And he ended up while he was out in Colorado one time, he was approached by someone from Jam Play, said, hey, uh, you know, would you like to give some um, acoustic blues lessons um, on Jam Play? It was a startup at the time. It was started by these two guys who had uh, gone to college were graduating didn't have any idea what they were going to do with their lives after they graduated and one of them was a guitar player and they decided to start up a guitar instructional uh service online uh called jamplay.com and they started off with just local teachers in their immediate vicinity and uh after a while they started to branch out and go for instructors who were better known nationally uh, and things like that. Well, my friend Hawkeye Herman recommended me. And at that time, I had been teaching for, you know, National Guitar Workshop, which is a, a big uh, um, workshop that teaches all over the United States during the summer. It no longer is in business. But um, I had been teaching and I had a pretty good reputation as a teacher. Plus, I was an artist. So uh, they were interested in getting me um, in there. And uh, so anyway, uh, I ended up teaching for jamplay.com and uh, doing series of uh, videos for them. First, an electric blues video uh, series. And um, then uh, I then they wanted me to do some more. They liked my teaching style. And so um, I did a, a series on electric uh, uh, bottleneck slide blues. And then they asked me to do a fingerstyle acoustic one, um, ragtime blues and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, delta blues and things like that on acoustic guitar. So that's what I did. And that's how I started off with jamplay.com. And uh, so uh, that really kind of started my Internet teaching. Uh, I do have some private students who take from me on Skype, uh, but um, but by and large, uh you know, most of my teaching is just done face-to-face locally and on jam play. But I do go in every every Monday. I go in there from 11 a.m. my time to 1 p.m. my time on, on Mondays. And I'm giving a live lesson every week on at jam play. And it's a question and answer. So they can see me. I can't see them. But they type in their questions. And I get to know them all just by them typing in all the time, you know. Um, and, uh, so, uh, they might ask me anything. It might, they might say, Hey, can you explain what a Phrygian dominant scale is or something like that? Or they might, they might just ask me something related to theory, or they might just say, Hey, can you teach me, 
can you teach me something by this guitar player or can you can you let's just do some blues today or something like that so uh so yeah that's that's kind of how jam play uh works and um it, it's been a good connection yeah that's so you're talking about people who are already signed in for those to jam play they're part of jam play who are able to have access to this right yeah, uh, what Jam Play does is they they'll when you do videos with them they'll take your most rudimentary videos because the majority of people want uh, wanting lessons are beginners uh, or or if not beginners and people who've played for a long time but who haven't really applied themselves that much because they've had day jobs and families and careers and so um, they'll post the simplest stuff and they'll put it in YouTube. And then they'll put links to jamplay.com. So that's how people find it. So that's why I'm always saying the stuff that they put on jam uh, on YouTube is like the stuff that I've recorded at like nine o'clock in the morning on a Monday. Uh, it's the beginning of this series. And it's like the simplest stuff. And I'm like haggard you know, and just floating. Blues personality. That's what you got to have. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, that that's, I can just picture that. And actually I sort of knew of you because as I told you in an email, uh, when I was trying to learn how to play a thumb, uh, walking bass, I was ah. at all the different, uh, people who were doing finger picking with the bass line. And you have, uh, actually what you're doing is not what I was looking for, but I looked at it anyway and was interested in, so you have the, I don't know why there's like 20 versions of the rolling blues in E. I know. But it's a great, uh, no, but that's actually the perfect example of the great way to start. You know, um, Harvey Mandel, who played with us, as you know, uh, was interested in that kind of thing. And I'm trying to think of who, I can't think of the names of the guitar players who do that kind of thing. Well, Chet Atkins, I guess, did some of that. You know, the doom, doom. Yeah, exactly. I think he was into guys like Leo Kotke. And the reason why I say that is because, uh, he had a bow. He had bojo guitars in Chicago. He had some custom-made bojos. Uh, Harvey did. Yep. Acoustics, yep. and he even had electrics made by that guy. Yep, that's right. And so he was into this, you know, doom, 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 da, 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 the uh, yeah. probably a name for that music, even. You know, some yeah, of the he had one. He had that one on that Snake album. When when you're on, you know, you're on that Snake album by him. Um, the, he had a tune on there. I forget its name now because uh, it's been years since I've remembered the names of the, all the songs but uh you know uh but there was one tune on there that was just him playing acoustic and it was electrified but you know I never have listened to the whole album <laughs> 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 on or something i don't know anyway that's a long 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 time ago eric yeah. uh we have a few minutes left but i think what would be really interesting is to get into your approach currently, because, you know, you have a, a huge amount of experience, obviously. Uh, and I'm very curious about how complicated your life is. You have a family and everything. But when you wake up in the morning, as I woke you up this morning for this nine o'clock thing, um, you think right away about going to the guitar or is that novelty past? Or how, how do you feel about your music other than a way to earn a living today. I mean, obviously you love music and you play it. And when you want to play, when you're out playing live, there's no question. You don't do that just for money. You do it because you want to play live. But just in general, when you're not playing on a gig, uh, what are you doing? Are you composing? Do you get up half the time in the middle of the night and compose? How do you do it? What, what's, what's happening now? Well, um, these days, um, you know, yeah, I do think a lot about the business of music. And it's not so much the business. 
as an artist, I'm always trying to wonder where I'm going le- next. Um, the problem with versatility uh, and, you know, all the different things that I've played over my life when it comes to music, you know, starting with folk and country and then blues and rock, you know, I was did a lot of that Southern rock type of stuff. And then I was really into jazz and, you know, that's been a work in progress my whole life, the whole jazz thing. And, you know, um, I've been able to gig in that. So there have been a lot of ways in which I've had little bits of success. So when it comes to me as an artist, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of like being a versatile guitar player is a double-edged sword. You know, it can work for you in terms of gigging or in terms of teaching, but as an artist, it doesn't work for you because obviously as an artist, you're marketed, you have an audience that wants a certain thing. So if you're a blues, if you're, if they have a blues record by you and they come out to see you and you're playing jazz next time, they're not happy with it. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about where I'm going next, you know, and I, I kind of figure that if I follow my heart, I'll figure it out one of these days. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, with me, it's also a matter of if you keep writing original compositions, that's obviously who you are. You know, um, you can play, you can learn things by other people and go, wow, isn't that great, man? I just learned that song by so-and-so. It's really good. You know, I got that thing down. I like it. It's fun to go out and play it and everything like that. But ultimately, that's not you. What What's you is what comes out of you, you know, as a natural process of composition. Yeah, so, I, think, I, yeah. Think I, yeah I know exactly what you're saying. I, I think I personally hide behind that whole concept of, you know, I listen to somebody shredding or the new tapping style you know, 700 times faster than I could do it. But I think, yeah, they can do that. And that's wonderful. And I respect it and I admire it. But they can't do what I do because it comes out of my head. Absolutely. And I don't like to, when people ask me, for example, what kind of music do you play? I can never answer. I don't know. Cause I don't want to say blues because I don't really play blues. At yeah. all. I play my own thing and I, uh, I like that. And I think it's good. Now, the fact that I learn a new instrument every year, <laughs> it's just a little distracting, but <laughs> some way at some point I'll, uh, I'll find one that actually works better for me. Right now I'm on the saxophone. I'm making great progress. I've been playing for not just not quite nine months. Hopefully uh, I will be able to do something in public within a few months and uh, in the funk blues area. And I'm mm-hmm. less traumatized by, because I haven't listened to 8 million saxophone players as I have listened to 8 million guitar players. So it's a little less daunting to me to be able to mm-hmm. play what I hear in my head because it's more limited. But I think limiting is, is a good thing. Oh, yeah. Let's talk a little about distribution before we, before we go. So you, are, you had labels and you started a label, did you not, for that matter? Yeah, L- Luna Records is my own label. And um, I, uh, I, I've put all my own records on that. And so there have been a six so far, including one of them was actually a bottleneck slide instructional uh, a tape, you know. But um, there – put out six things on that label. And then my son, uh, I, I made myself available to others, but my label loon is sort of like a co-op type of thing. In other words, I own nothing of the artists that are on there. So my son had a band in, in Boston while he was going to Berkeley uh, college music there. And, uh, they were called dirty licks. So they were my, they were also on my label. And, uh, 
you know, so I own nothing up there. The only thing I figure is if the more people I get on my label, the more we can pay for distribution together and pay for promotion together as a cooperative type of thing. Other than that, I don't own anything up there. So it's just we're just on the same, you know, uh, label by name, you know. And how do you see distribution these days? Because we're down to from all the record labels that existed, there are there are two or three now, I think, that own the world, basically. Yeah. Or, or is it one? It's just Sony owns everything. I don't know. Anyway, no one cares about that anymore. Yeah. We're independent. And um, the internet is out there. The inter- the good news is, you know, anybody from anywhere can upload a video on YouTube and you can make video simple. But noise coming. I put myself on focus here. Uh, but the good news is that the bad news is that also anyone can copy and distribute anything you do. You know, uh, my because I created a label for the same reasons, Eric. And um, we used to get all kinds of emails from China from people saying that they were with a university radio station and stuff. Mm-hmm. I would not hesitate for a minute to think that some of those, if you sent them the CD, the CD may have been copied and for sale on the street, depending on how yeah. much you liked it. So, 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 you know, that's the internet for you. But yeah. That's, that's I have a question for you, by the way, specific to you. When you were on your site, some of the albums are out of print. Well, what yeah. if you want to listen, can't you post the stuff someplace so that we can download it even for a fee? Yeah. Yeah, I could, and I probably should. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for letting me know, because I, you know, you're, you're thinking, you're thinking ahead of me when it comes to business, you know. Well, uh, as I told you, not that you have to use these people, noise trade, but yeah. one thing you could do, there's, there's a way. Um, yeah, Corrado says SoundCloud, which is true too. But what I'm talking about is getting money. Noise trade has a thing where you can sell the uh, album for whatever, or you can tell people pay whatever you want. That's another typical uh, plan, by the way, is pay what you want. Uh, another little, go ahead. Oh, excuse me. One of the reasons why I let those albums go out of print too is also is that I felt that artistically they didn't reach their mark. You know what I mean? They were, I had recorded them. I produced them by myself and often on sort of a shoestring budget. And so um, I, I kind of felt like, gee, that song could have been, or that, that instrumental could have been recorded a lot better, or I, I really could do a better job now. And uh, so uh, learning, I learned things from those uh, those processes, you know. And so, yeah, I'd like to re-record a lot of those tunes. And put them on just say, take the tunes and re-record them, because these days, yeah. and another question that comes up, by the way, is what are you using, what kind of software are you doing? Are you on Mac or PC, first of all, or Linux, eventually? Well, uh, I'm on. I'm actually on a PC, but my son is on Mac, and he records on on Mac. And so, uh, if I do any uh, future recording, I'm considering having him recording me because he's done some really nice recordings. Um, and so, everything I've done has always been in a recording studio, just simply because I didn't want the hassle of thinking about any of the processes. I just wanted to come in and play music. Uh, but um, you know, uh, I from looking at the quality of the things that people have done on their own, certainly the time that they've put into doing it themselves or doing it on a computer hasn't hurt them, you know. Oh, no, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Do you know what uh, he is he using logic or something like it? Yeah, he's using logic pro right now. Um, and, uh, he's used other ones. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of my friends use reaper, 
um, and uh, some of them use uh, uh, you know Pro Tools, of course, still, um, and uh, some of them even have even used GarageBand and have gotten some decent results. But um, you know they've often said that there's certain things in there that that aren't up to the quality that uh, although there's newer versions of GarageBand, but uh, he's using Pro uh, he's using that uh, Logic uh, Pro, so uh, you know that's. I, I may be recording in that next. Yeah, I think you should. That's what I have. I have Logic, and it's. I find it to be a fantastic. In fact, I bought it. It's around the $200 level, I think, something like that. And mm -hmm. I bought it years ago, and it just sat there. I never used it. I wasn't inspired because I had um, the GarageBand, which is its, kind of its predecessor that used to come with the Mac, I think. Um, now it's paid upgrade or whatever. I haven't upgraded it. But the point is, anyway, I finally got to the point where I go, well, let me take a look at this. And Logic is a really an amazing tool. The, the major point here being that you can actually sit down anywhere where it's quiet. Uh, if you need drums, that's a whole other issue apart from everything else because then you're going to need to make noise and you need a place that's acoustically cool and all that. Um, same thing with the saxophone, by the way. I'm lucky enough to live in a place where I can actually play, at least during the day, not a problem. I've talked to everybody. Yeah, it's nice. Don't hear it or like it. So <laughs> go Yeah. For it. Uh, but the point is, anyway, that other than those issues of local noise, of making noise, a logic or or something like it, you've got a decently powered computer. A lot of people make use iPads, by the way. The high end iPad is something wow. I wouldn't do, but you can do multi track on it. Anyway, so we're not limited by that anymore, and I think that's fantastic. It's the reason that I think a lot of young artists do break through, and you know that with the internet and. If you get some really nice looking ladies to dance uh, on your video, you go, you're, you're cool. You're there. We, we never <laughs> that thought never hurts. We never thought of that when we were in high school, right? <laughs> no, way too. Yeah. Way too serious. Way too serious. Well, none of that existed then. Then it was like, you know, put on the guitar and learn the licks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So well, looking forward to hearing more of uh, your projects and maybe your son will be able to record some of them maybe we can do some uh hey maybe we can do a cross continental intercontinental recording at some point that would be great i mean it wouldn't be, live. Be wouldn't be alive because there's several hundred milliseconds between us but we could certainly exchange uh files which a lot of people that's another thing that's very common today mm -hmm. so we'll work on that i'll let you know what uh, i might be capable of doing <laughs> in this uh, day and age and um we should look into that yeah, we should. Yeah, I, I've got some ideas right off the bat, you know. Okay, well, we'll talk further. We just met today, and we'll talk further. Uh, let me remind people to go to ericmadis.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-D-I-S.com. There's also, remind me, Jamplay. I'm looking at it. Jamplay. I showed a bunch of it, the screens. Jamplay.com, if you're interested in the lessons, or uh, you contact Eric on his site. There's a contact form, just like there is on mine. <laughs> That's it. You've been there. You've done that. No codecs were harmed in the production of the VUC IP Communications and VoIP community. Once again, thanks to these great companies for their continued support. Simwood, Greenfield Tech, ZipDX, Voxbone, and Bluehost.com. <laughs>